joining me now on the water cooler, U.S. Senator James Lankford from the great state of Oklahoma. Senator, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Really glad to be able to join you today. Well, Senator uh, Joe Biden, uh, he's been called president-elect. Is that too premature at this point? That is premature. People can choose to call him whatever they choose to call him. I call him Joe Biden uh, at this point because he doesn't have a title uh, right now. Uh, all the ballots have been certified. We don't know yet uh, who's going to end up being the eventual winner on that. Uh, we'll get through the count and then we'll know. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, Robert O'Brien, the NSA director, and also uh, John Bolton, of course, the former uh, director there at the NSA, uh, talking about uh, the fact that Republicans, it's time for Republicans to tell voters that he is indeed president-elect, or actually what Robert O'Brien uh, talked about. It looks like Joe Biden has won the election. So you're saying this is, uh, wh what do you make of some of those comments? So there's a certification process we have to be able to go through. That'll be done by December 14th. Right now, there is uh, there is dispute between the two different uh, people that were competing for this. Obviously, current President uh, Trump and then Joe Biden as well. Uh, we don't know yet who the final winner is. And when we go through this process, we'll know. But I'm not trying to declare it early on this. I know a lot of folks in some media outlets are trying to declare it early. Uh, we went through 37 days of evaluation of this in 2000. And uh, somehow our country survived in it. And uh, so let's allow the court proceedings to go out. Let's allow maximum transparency. Uh, let's see what the hand recount says in Georgia and how it compares against their machine count. That'll find out if there really was a glitch in the system, and we'll know once and for all. Uh, let's look at ballots that were actually submitted uh, by people that were long since dead and to be able to find out who's voting for people that have long since been dead. And then let's ask the uh, constitutional questions in Pennsylvania and to be able to find out how we getting, uh, do, uh, we're getting equal justice under the law there everyone's being treated the same. Senator, do you have some serious concerns? I mean, you mentioned a glitch in the system. Do you have some serious concerns about Dominion voting systems? What's been your, your sense of it so far? So it's unknown at this point. It's a new system, and I've heard all the accusations. I've heard all the background information on it. The big question is, it's untested, and we don't know. This is the first really big test for it. Uh, it is entirely reasonable for us to do a um, hand recount in Georgia to be able to make sure that that's actually accurate. Uh, that's the best way to be able to test the software is to be able to not just do individual precincts, test it all, and then you get a chance to be able to know. I want to ask you about the GSA administration. Uh, Emily Murphy, a Trump appointee, obviously. Democrats are <laughs> quick to point out she's a Trump appointee. They want that letter. They want that certification letter from the GSA administration uh, as it relates to making sure the transition process can go along smoothly here and at least get some, many of those funds. What do you think should be done on GSA? So their GSA has by law the requirement to ascertain who the winner is and then to be able to help the winner, uh, then to be able to do their transition. It gets them security clearances, it gets them transition space, uh, IT support, all of those things as well. GSA doesn't have the legal authority or constitutional authority to ascertain if it's a disputed election. We don't know who the election is. And uh, liberals around the country are trying to be able to run into GSA and to say, force the issue, make them submit at this point. That, that's not GSA's role. GSA is, a, is an entity that's trying to work on government efficiency, uh, but also has the responsibility for transition. One of the things that I've challenged GSA on is this, is say, walk through the metrics of how we actually get to a, a national security clearance. Because in 2000, when there was the last big disputed election, uh, at that time, candidate Bush was cut off uh, from getting intel briefings. Uh, many people don't know, you get intel briefings as soon as you declared the Republican or the Democrat candidate. So Joe Biden, for instance, has been receiving intel briefings for months at this point 
but those stopped as soon as the election occurred until we know who the actual winner is. I think we should continue doing the briefings the same as it was during the campaign time period because we're still in the campaign. We don't know who the winner is at this point. That's the one thing to be able to work out with GSA is to say, I'll just allow the same thing to continue that has continued uh, in this process. But you can't declare someone president-elect from a government entity. That That's not going to happen. So, Senator, just to be clear, I want to clear up any media reports out there, this idea that you were encouraging intel intelligence briefings for uh, Joe Biden uh, to continue. But you're, you're saying that you want him, how do you want the GSA to handle this? I'm trying, I'm just trying to understand exactly how this should proceed because I want you to set, set that record straight. Yeah, to set the record straight, Joe Biden's received intelligence briefings since August. Every single day he gets an intel briefing because he's a presidential candidate that's been declared by the Democratic Party, just like President Trump did starting after the Republican convention in 2016. He received intelligence briefings every day. He and Hillary Clinton both got them during that time period as well. They have now stopped, and this same event happened in 2000. The 9-11 Commission came back later and said, hey, if we ever get to a disputed election, GSA and other entities should continue to be able to work with both candidates until the American people know, until it's actually certified in the election. There's no harm in allowing both to continue on this uh, same briefings. I've had some folks that said, hey, there are problems with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and China and Ukraine. I don't want him to get briefings. And I've smiled and said, Hey, you should have stopped that five months ago mm -hmm. uh, because he's received briefings for months. That's what we do for presidential candidates. And then we allow them to be able to be prepared, knowing we had two horses in the race. One of them will be the next president on that one. Obviously, I hope that's President Trump at this point when we finish all the ballot counting. But we still have two horses in the race and we should both get them prepared for national security issues. National security is not political. National security affects all of us equally. What does that look like from a step-in standpoint? How, how would you potentially step in and try to uh, break this? If it's a logjam, I don't know what you would call it exactly. Yeah, for me, stepping in, it, uh, the, the media made a yeah. bunch of news about me saying I'm going to step in. It's like I'm going to step in and take over the world uh, to be able to do that. The committee that I chair has oversight of GSA. So my responsibility is GSA obviously can't make this decision, is to be able to work with them to say, how are you going to make this decision? I'm the person that can talk back and forth with him uh, to be able to say, give me your metrics, give me your plan and your strategy. I've had conversations with GSA leadership. My staff has had conversations with GSA leadership. This is not a position any leader of GSA would ever want to be in because people are going to put unrealistic expectations on them of what they can do. They're, they're not going to declare winners. Their responsibility is the legal issue is to ascertain who the winner is. That winner's not been declared. And uh, so they're going to continue to pause, but they do have to be able to work through this to set reasonable timelines. And for us as a nation, it's already in law. That's December the 14th is the date that is in law that this all has to be resolved one way or the other. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to continue to work with folks to say, how do we get to national security briefings for both? So regardless of who's elected, they're both ready. So just so I understand, you want to see uh, Joe Biden continue to get these briefings like he was getting in August? You just want to figure out a way that he can that, that it can go through GSA? No, GSA would be the one to be able to be a part of actually right. signing off on that because they're the they're the physical entity that actually does that. But, yes, I do think he needs to receive those briefings. Again, you take politics out of it. You take DNR out of this mm -hmm. uh, entirely. This is a national security issue. Both sides have been receiving briefings for months every single day to prepare them. Intelligence is not something you can read over a weekend to be ready to be able to do the next week. It's layer upon layer of information about every region of the world. 
I don't want to stop that for either one of them until we actually know what the final result's going to be. By the way, any sense of a timeline on that, how long that might take uh, with GSA? No, the, 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 the president's going to take as long as he chooses to be able to take in this, to be able to challenge the election, to be able to go through the process. He has every right to be able to do that, quite mm -hmm. frankly, every responsibility to do that. The ultimate time period is going to be December the 14th, because December the 14th is when this has to be certified. Every state has to have their information in. Everything has to be done and begin the process with the Electoral College at that point. Senator, what happens, and this is this has been talked about, what happens if, if certain states have not certified the results by the 14th or the 8th, I guess it's a safe harbor deadline? Right. So by law, in each state, they have to be able to do that by their own law. Obviously, there'll be court challenges within their state uh, to be able to do that. And if you'll remember during the 2000 election, uh, initially, George Bush didn't receive uh, intelligence briefings. It was all up in the air for 37 days. Uh, and then eventually, by the end of November, it was decided no, both sides need to get intel briefings. At the same time, they were working through all the legal process. They made it also by the deadline. There were four recounts in Florida at that time, two different trips uh, to the Supreme Court. And uh, so, our, again, our judicial system can handle the stress and the pressure of it. Our states can do the same on this. I have full faith in our structure and our system. But right now is the time to be able to get answer. We, we can't say what that answer is going to be. We're getting answers with things like the hand recount in Georgia yeah. right now. I have less than a minute left, but I have to ask you about the vaccine and some of the encouraging news we heard about Moderna. What do you make of that? What do you think folks in Oklahoma are taking away? I know there's a lot of folks that might be concerned about taking a vaccine, in, especially in a, in a rushed environment. Yeah, it, it's, it's not rushed in any way except for they stripped out the bureaucracy. Uh, typically, it takes a very long time on a vaccine because they'll do a few steps on it. Then it takes months and months of, of government work and then a few steps in the science and months and months of government work that slows the whole process down. What the Trump team did is in this Operation Warp Speed is to strip out any of the bureaucratic impediments and to guarantee a purchase at the end of it. Uh, so they could say, if you can produce a safe and effective uh, vaccine, we mm -hmm. will then purchase it at the end of it. So that gave them a guaranteed buyer and it stripped away all the bureaucracy and put the attention of everybody on it. And so they can do the science can do its actual work. I think a lot of people in Oklahoma are ready to roll up their sleeves and to be able to get it. But I would tell you, yeah. no one's going to be mandated uh, to be able to get it. Uh, it's going to be a choice to be able to get it for those that want to be able to get it. Senator Langford, always great to see you. And thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. You know, always good to check in with a good doctor once in a while. You know, I know it might be a co-pay situation, but you got to keep up on your regular checkups. By the way, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, because we're going to talk about the vaccine specifically and Thanksgiving and COVID and some doctor advice. We want to bring in Dr. Jesse Pelletier, the president of Halodyne, uh, who is uh, joining us now. Uh, Dr. Pelletier, really appreciate your uh, time here. 
David, it's a pleasure to have me on. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, talk to me a little bit about this, uh, this vaccine that we're hearing so much about. I mean, you are the president of Halodyne, so, you know, you've got uh, something invested, when I say invested, at least invested in the, the safety of Americans and, and coronavirus, because you, you, you started Halodyne. So tell me a little bit about what we should expect from a potential vaccine that could be very close here. Yeah, I mean, uh, the vaccine, Moderna and Pfizer now reporting, these are really great days for science and, and humanity at large. Uh, it means that there might finally be an end to this pandemic at some point in 2021, perhaps late or even towards the end of 2021. But a lot will still need to go right, of course. Um, there, are, there remain a lot of unanswered questions, and there's a large gap between now having the data on some of the efficacy and actually developing a population-based immunity. So that's gonna take a while. Um, there are, again, a lot of questions, uh, which include what type of protection is conferred for mild disease, moderate disease, severe disease? What is the duration of the immunity? Is it just a couple of months or six months? Will we need booster vaccines or booster shots? Um, and what type of immunity will there be? Will, will it be sterilizing where we can no longer be infected or will it be non-sterilizing immunity where we can be infected but not shed virus uh, you know, and infect other people? So many questions, uh, many, many still unanswered, but really uh, uh, there's more light at the end of the tunnel here than we had before. And I think that's palpable amongst our, you know, our colleagues Doctor, I want to ask you about this. When it comes to the safety, I mean, I guess we'll find out. So far, it seems to be going along well. But what's what's the wary part of this? I mean, in other words, what what should people think about regarding this vaccine? A lot of people are going to be concerned that it might have been rushed and all of that. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the trials, they're enrolled in, in incredibly robust, you know, over both trials between Moderna and Pfizer. You know, we're looking at 80,000 people who have been enrolled. So, and, and we haven't seen any serious adverse events and that's just, just great news. So I would fully trust a vaccine like this. But some local injection site uh, inflammation or flu-like symptoms, and we've even heard from, uh, you know, some of these vaccines a, a day or two, if it's not feeling well, like you might have to do something. That would all be completely normal. Um, I, I would really trust these vaccines with the uh, data and some of the uh, independent assessment that's going to go into the process. So I'm yeah. very excited. You know, there, Thanksgiving just around the corner and uh, there are some governors, not that we, we're not going to get into politics here, but there are some governors that are coming out with many COVID restrictions as it relates to Thanksgiving. Oregon, for example, uh, the governor there, the, uh, the Oregon governor, Kate Brown, uh, saying this, large parties uh, could trigger fines or jail time during the coronavirus freeze. And then you've got the mayor in Chicago, the Chicago's mayor, saying you must cancel the normal Thanksgiving plans. Uh, from a doctor's perspective, what should people know about going into Thanksgiving? Because those seem pretty pretty radical uh, suggestions. Yeah, I mean, Thanksgiving, you know, of, of course, this is going to be a difficult time. We, we have to realize the psychological toll this virus has taken on a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And it can be very therapeutic to spend time with our family and friends and break bread. But in certain parts of the country, something like this doesn't make sense. Uh, now, now, me personally, of course, I'm against any sort of uh, overarching uh, mandate to, to stay at home um, you know, that comes from the top. But at certain local levels where levels of prevalence and incidence of infection are very high, 
some of these some of these measures may make sense. A lot of it depends on on real time tracking of data in your community. Uh, what's the percentage of positive infections? Uh, what's the prevalence? What's the incidence? How many people might you have in quarantine or isolation? Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of uh, draconian, but in certain cases it may be necessary depending on spread. Can you give us a little roadmap for people attending Thanksgiving celebrations, maybe either out of town or even in town at other, someone's home? And, you know, what what should be some of the simple protocol stuff? I mean, obviously washing your hands and all that. But, I mean, is there something that we should remember when we're gathering in these small gatherings? Because I know a lot of governors and even the CDC saying the small gatherings are, are now a bit of a concern. Sure, of course. It's a great question. I mean, first of all, you know, the safest thing is to do it virtually, of course, but a lot of us aren't, aren't going yeah. to do that. And another option is the bubble. You, you might take people within your household and say, OK, over the next two weeks, we're going to get ourselves tested and we're not going to do things like taking like taking risks. And then when we come together, we'll be much safer and we can spend that time together. That's option two. It's very difficult as well. The third is, you know, you have to you have to understand that there's going to be risk in any decision that we make, and we have to always assess the risk benefits and alternatives. Uh, so we want to make sure that if we are going to gather together, that we 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 spread it out, we keep six feet apart, we try to keep some sort of adequate ventilation. It's not so hard for me because I live in Miami, but perhaps in colder climates, we we crank up the heat and and, and open the windows um, and, and try just to message throughout the dinner as hard as it may be, especially when judgment is impaired, when alcohol is served. That, that you need to mask up, you need to distance, you need to wash your hands and follow the, the basic pillars of, of infection control. And that's, that's all we can do. But as you know, life yeah. is, a, is an assessment of risk. Uh, before we let you go, I want you to tell me a little bit more about uh, Halodyne, uh, because we've got a little less than a minute or so. Tell me about that because it's been very, very uh, important in the fight against coronavirus. Yes, it, it certainly has. So Halodyne is a povidone iodine-based antiseptic that kills SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID-19, and it kills it in the nose and the mouth. So that's important because in the nose and the mouth, you have this infection viral particles, which then enter droplets and aerosols. So by killing this virus, we're able to basically defang the aerosols and droplets that are, that are produced so that they're no longer infectious. So when you use something like halodyne in conjunction with masks, we can really uh, give it a shot at breaking the back of viral transmission. So we're very excited about our product, and uh, we've had great success to this point. And 10 seconds or so, how do people, I mean, you, obviously it has to be prescribed, or, or how does that work exactly? It's an FDA-registered OTC, so www.halodyne.com. You can order online. Okay, over the counter, the old OTC. All right, <laughs> Dr. Jesse Pelletier, really appreciate your time. Hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I got to tell you, that's some catchy music right there. I like it. That is my new ringtone. I've decided it's my new ringtone, and my wife's going to look at me going, why is that your new your, like, Why is that your new ringtone? Like, you're not narcissistic enough. Now you have to listen to the theme of the water cooler. Anyhow, that's a whole separate issue between me and my wife, which should be another segment. Dan, we should do that as a segment. 
Should we? Yeah, we should. All right. Uh, let's bring in Scott Rasmussen. It has nothing to do with anything I just said uh, or talked about. Hey, Scott, great to, great to see you there. Hey, great to see you. And, and just for whatever it's worth, I used to have uh, Alice Cooper's Schools Out as my ringtone, and that always annoyed my wife, too. So <laughs> You're dating yourself, Scott. You're dating yourself. <laughs> I'm an old guy. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Alice Cooper, is he still alive, by the way? Should we get him on the show? We should. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. All right, we're going to do that for sure. All right, Scott, let's talk about polls. Uh, I don't know if Alice Cooper is going to approve this poll or not, but <laughs> why, why don't you give me the latest on uh, what you're seeing over there uh, in terms of the, the split nation that we seem to be in regarding uh, President-elect Biden and the folks that don't think he's president-elect quite yet. Yeah, a poll that I conducted right after the election uh, for justthenews.com. And I, I think before I give the answers, it's really important to understand the timing of when this poll took place because we're updated again soon. Uh, but it was conducted from Thursday night, a couple nights after the election, to Saturday early afternoon. So before any news network had declared Joe Biden as president-elect. And during that time, what we found is that 49% of voters believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president uh, this year in 2020, 49%, basically half. 34% said that, no, Donald Trump was the legitimate winner of this election. 16% were not sure. Um, as you might guess, big partisan divide. 77% of Republicans said that Trump was the legitimate winner. 87% um, of Democrats said Biden was the legitimate winner. And when we pushed a little bit further, we found that even though 34% believed that Donald Trump actually won this election, only 20% believed he would be declared the winner. And again, we'll update those numbers in a, you know, as the week or weeks go by. You know, Scott, I got to tell you, those numbers are fascinating to me. It doesn't surprise me necessarily, but I don't want to call them sad numbers. But that—that uh, that is, I mean, you have to wonder what's coming in America if we're getting numbers like that about the presidency of the United States. Well, first of all, you know, I got to put a little bit of perspective in this. The 34 percent who say that they think Donald Trump was the legitimate winner and you have this divide. The number that it is most similar to is the number who four years ago thought Hillary Clinton was the legitimate winner, the people who went on to become the resistance. Uh, and while it is really intense in this Trump era, I mean, where I live, we actually rode down the street and saw a pro-Trump rally two days after the election. So there's a lot of intensity and passion out there. But this has been going on for a very long time. Uh, in the 1990s, when Bill Clinton had uh, some troubles that you may recall, uh, he came in, he came back from a family vacation one day and ordered bombing at some guy named Osama bin Laden. And about a third of the country thought he did it to distract us from uh, the Monica Lewinsky story, about a third of the country thought, no, Bill Clinton is a saint. He would never do anything like that. So we've had this divide on a very partisan basis, and it is getting deeper and deeper and angrier as time goes on. So let me ask you a little bit about the polling uh, that we saw. Uh, what do you make of the state of polling today? Uh, what, what, will be, what changes do you think might be on the way? Do you think there will be changes on the way? Uh, what's, what's the sense of the industry, the profession today in terms of the way at least it is viewed by Americans out there? Well, we did another poll for justthenews.com and it was really kind of depressing. We found that uh, 
pollsters are viewed even less favorably than reporters and journalists right uh -oh. now. I mean, that's a really low rise. That kind of puts us in the category like members of Congress or something. 34% uh -huh. uh, of voters said that pollsters did a good job this year, 33% a poor job. Partisan divide. 50% of Republicans said we did a poor job. Only 13% of Democrats agreed. But the state of the industry, I believe, I wrote a column for the Deseret News. You can find it at Deseret.com. It's called, It's Time to Put the Election Forecasting Industry Out of Its Misery. The industry, there's a myth going on right now that we used to have a working model that somehow the last two elections, the polls messed up. That's simply not true. The election forecasters have had trouble big mistakes every single election of this century, and actually even dipping back into the 90s. Uh, we do not have a model that works. We're still covering elections the way we did when Walter Cronkite was you know, in the anchor chair at CBS and back when it was in black and white. This is an industry polling needs to change, but the way people use polls need to change. Uh, I actually called for an end to public polls during the final two weeks of a campaign. I don't think a responsible pollster should do that going forward because they add no value to the debate and they do create potential for problems. Scott, so what are some of the structural changes do you think that need to be made or do we need to look at this? I mean, maybe it's not a question that you can answer right now a week after the election, but I, but I would think, you know, where, how do you get a new model? What do you, what do, you do exactly? Well, there are things we will do, but the first, the first thing to recognize is that if you have a if you have a race that is close, a political campaign where the candidates are two or three points apart, a poll with a three point margin of error is not the best tool to tell you precisely who's going to win. All a poll can do is tell you it's close or this candidate maybe has a little better chance than that candidate. Um, in my pre-election analysis, I kept saying there's a range of potential outcomes. The best case is a narrow, best case for Republicans, is a very narrow win for Donald Trump and the Senate Republicans. Best case for Democrats was a modest win for Joe Biden. That's what the data collectively said. We need to talk more in ranges, and our, our polling needs to focus more on the voters and less on the candidates. Yeah, so that makes me think about what might have to change as it relates to the electorate. In other words, was the non-college educated voter was, I mean, was education factored in? I mean, I thought they did some changes to that uh, in some of the sure. polling. Absolutely. It made some changes and we will make some changes this year. But th those things, um, I, I can't think of a particular comparison, but yes, it's good. That it's important that we look at those things. I made a lot of extra outreach to reach people who were, uh, who were white voters without a college degree, but that's not the core problem. Even if we have perfect polling with a margin of error, and if, if we're not asking the right questions, we're not focusing on the voters, they are not going to be very helpful to us. Uh, yeah. There were a number of polls yeah. that were good, but it's only one part of the problem. And look, David, I'm gonna be writing a lot more about this. I've got another column yeah. coming out this week on these challenges. Well, Scott, I really appreciate your time. Love to have you back as always. You're like a, you're a friend of the show, we've decided. We've decided <laughs> that, by the way, thank you. All right. All right, great. Scott Rasmussen, a friend of the show. That is official. You can look that up on Twitter. I think that's verified. Back in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. 
VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. All right, look, if Donald Trump uh, wins the presidency yet again, there's going to be, <laughs> I don't I know why I'm laughing, uh, there's going to be a major meltdown in this country. I'm just saying. Uh, folks are going to just go a bit berserk. The liberals and Democrats are going to, we won't be able to contact them for any interviews. They'll literally be on the floor uh, and we'll need smelling salts to revive them. I'm telling you it's going to happen. Trust me. We've got smelling salts here at The Water Cooler. I believe that's in the budget if I'm not mistaken. And then at actual universities, uh, check this out. We've got some headlines that we've seen around uh, the country. Look at the college fix uh, talking about this. Universities prepare students to cope with 2020 election results, and it just keeps going uh, on and on. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I want to talk more about this with Thane Rosenbaum. He's a distinguished university professor at Turo College. Uh, Dr. Rosenbaum, or excuse me, Professor Rosenbaum, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Any, anytime, David. What do you make of what's happening at some of these universities? We're seeing Harvard, Michigan, uh, there's others. I mean, it's, it's out of control. But it's also, it's predictable, David. It's all part of the, uh, you know, the in, what we call the intersectional woke protocols of the university life, right? Where a, an extreme focus is on providing safe spaces, which is the term of art, uh, to vulnerable minority students and students of color uh, and LGBT uh, sexual orientation. So we've seen this in many ways. It's sort of the coddling of American students on campuses, which unfortunately doesn't really prepare them for real life. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at some of this uh, just in front of me. I mean, they actually have, there's a whole pamphlet. There's a, there's a book about it here at the University of Michigan uh, talking about uh, a booklet called Preparing to Teach About the 2020 Election and after, what, what do college students take away from this? I mean, you talked about the downside of this, but when they see something like that, I mean, I would think, especially as a conservative college student, there are some out there, actually. Uh, that's got to be tough to, tough to handle. Hey, David, you just hit on the great irony of our little talk, which is the, the greatest percentage of minority students in college campuses are conservative students. Uh, you know, they make up the smallest number, uh, at least in terms of their self-identification. Uh, but because they're primarily white and are seen as part of the white privileged ruling class, they're not perceived in any way. For instance, they couldn't come to the dean of students and say, I'm worried about a Biden presidency. <laughs> you know, I'm it makes me feel endangered or traumatized. A Jewish student, for instance, couldn't go to a dean or a, a Christian, Christian evangelical couldn't say, I'm a little concerned that the Biden administration won't be nearly as sympathetic to Israel as was Donald Trump. So I feel endangered or I feel traumatized or I feel targeted. The, the student would be laughed off campus. So the focus, again, is, is only on students of color, sexual orientation. And we see this. It's look, it's in the teaching of courses. Faculty members, David, are often afraid to, to teach their classes because if they hit upon a word or an issue or a book, uh, that is upsetting or hurtful, what's called a trigger warning or a microaggression, and that all of a sudden the student feels targeted or endangered. It's, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, 
But welcome to collegiate life, David. Well, and speaking about collegiate life, what is, where does that leave conservative uh, students at this point? In other words, you, you write an essay, uh, whether it be about abortion or some hot-button topic, uh, criminal justice reform, whatever it happens to be, uh, and, and what, you could potentially be graded uh, in a way that might not necessarily be uh, the way it should have been graded in the first place. I mean, you don't know exactly. I, I'm sure students go through this all the time. You're asking rhetorically, and I'm going to answer it definitely. Yes, you should not write a paper like that. I'm saying, if you're listening yeah. to Dave's show, don't do that. If you really, if you're worried about your GPA, don't do that. Write about something else. Uh, your conservative principles are simply not welcome, and that's for someone like me uh, who believes in liberal arts education. What does it mean to be on a university? Uh, campus, the exchange of ideas, robust debate, the marketplace of ideas, that's gone. Uh, there are certainly words, ideas that are forbidden. And yes, there are topics of, to write in favor of Israel is, is, is you know, not a smart strategic oh, move right. uh, in, any, in any class on campus. And so what you're seeing here is the, the second presidency of Donald Trump will endanger or traumatize or put targets on the bodies of students of color, LGBT, sexual orientation, uh, people who are purported in minority status. Now remember, David, nobody, you know, certainly I thought we should always be more sensitive to minorities, right? right we should, of course. This goes, this goes way beyond sensitivity, David. What we're seeing, what I say, what I said earlier, these intersectional woke protocols, this is extreme. This is very different. It goes to the idea that you said, I can't write a paper about something. I couldn't tell at lunch a number of other students that I'm, my parents are voting for Donald Trump or that I'm voting for Donald Trump. Nobody would admit to that. So yes, there is a suppression of intellectual life if you're a conservative student who has uh, yeah. you know, any conservative yeah. leanings and you know, God forbid you're, you, you're a supporter of Donald Trump. No, it's absolutely ridiculous. So, so where's the, is there any hope here? I mean, is this train left the station? What do, not just students, but I mean, you as a professor, I mean, how do you kind of, how do you say it? Fight the system or fight the mentality, fight the ideology. What do you do? Well, you know, it's a really good point, David, but we're, we're reaching the, the tipping point because what we used to believe, people like me used to believe, well, this was confined to university life. Don't worry. Unless you're on a campus for four years or unless you're an academic, you won't see it. The day they graduate, they go into the real world. They got to earn a living. They got to pay rent. And all of a sudden, they're judged according to more rigorous criteria. And no one outside is going to protect them in the same way from words or books or ideas that they find unpleasant or displeasing. That, that I, I was wrong, David. <laughs> uh, it it has left the barn. It is outside. We saw that with the New York Times this year with the Tom Car Cotton op-ed that was they apologized for, they withdrew their support for, they resigned because of it for the same reason. Here's the words that the Times staff used. The op-ed endangered the lives of the, of the writers and editors at the New York Times. And I would say, how? How, right. how and what? In what moral universe or political universe was anyone endangered by an op-ed that, by the way, introduced the idea of invoking the Insurrection Act, which was used yeah. to integrate yeah. the Deep South. So it was used yeah. to help African-Americans in the 1950s and 1960s. But now... Well. 
Dr. Rosenbaum. We lost you there at the end, but definitely got the point and uh, appreciate you and hope you will come back on. All right, when we come back, Donald Trump, he's called Orange Man Bad. We have a different take, Orange Shark Bad. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Time now for the last sip, a Friday last sip, so we might be a bit out of control because it is Friday. And, you know, we've had a lot of uh, pent-up, not frustration. We love the show, but, you know, there's a lot of intensity in the air, especially in this election. Hey, by the way, have you heard that Donald Trump is the devil? I don't know if you've heard that. It's true. I I mean, well, I'm not necessarily saying that, but if you listen to liberals and Democrats, they can't stand them. Uh, The media liberals and Democrats, Uh, they can't stand him either. Uh, So the list goes on and on. He's responsible for global warming. He wants to kick, uh, you know, immigrants out of the country, even though this just in, he's married to an immigrant. Anyhow, see, that's the pent up frustration in me. Uh, So so it's like orange man bad for sure. But we decided, you know what? Here at the water cooler, he's not orange man bad, apparently. Uh, We have a different word and a name and a term for him. As a matter of fact, let's roll some of that video so we can show you. Uh, He's, we've decided, there he is, he's orange shark bad uh, because he's a shark. Uh, Trump, there he is, Trump is the shark and with the Make America Great Again hat in the water. Uh, The orange shark in the water trying to destroy basically everybody that comes at him. So he's like the jaws. He's like the, uh, the orange jaws, if you will, against the media, against Democrats, against liberals, against Pelosi, against Adam Schiff. I can go on and on. Uh, the bottom line is Donald Trump, uh, and there he is. That's, that's basically him in four years, uh, just becoming the shark every single day. And here's the thing, and that's why, the reason we're putting up the shark video, and by the way, that hair, I love how the hair is like floating next to him. But anyhow, I'm sorry, I'm digressing as I look at the shark. I love that still picture of the shark, by the way. That's, can we just hold that shot? Oh, Parker, that's beautiful. Just, oh, let's just keep that. That's just, because here's what I want to say about that ugly, ugly, that's an ugly shark. I mean, not that Donald Trump is ugly, though some people would think he is. But look, the bottom line is, you got to understand, Americans like that, I think. Maybe not that picture necessarily, but they like the orange shark. That's what they like in mainstream America. And when I say mainstream America, I'm not talking about California or New York, but they like Trump because he's not a politician and he turns over a few tables and he tells it like it is. And yeah, he's rough around the edges. This just in, he's from New York, but he's a billionaire, a successful one who speaks like a cab driver. And they like how he cuts through all the, can I say this word? I'm going to say the word. Uh, Do we have a seven second delay? That's all right. Crap. That's not that bad of a word, but he cuts through the crap. That's what he does. And that's why Democrats can't stand him. And he is orange shark bad. That's our new little friend for the show. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Time for the last sip. I don't know. Sometimes I drink from the I I do. I drink from it. So this is what I think about 2020. I would totally like to censor this entire year. Uh, And if we can get a round of applause from everybody here on the set, and uh, I hear the control room. The control room is applauding. No one on the set, but I I can confirm the control room is applauding this sentiment. By the way, speaking of this sentiment, how about Twitter, uh, what they did? Can we roll some of this? Uh, Jason Miller from the campaign, the Trump campaign, put out this. Massive legal victory in Philadelphia just now. More to follow shortly. Um, So then this came. 31 minutes later, 
Twitter decided to say, uh, no, some or all of the content shared in this tweet is disputed. And my, what's disputed exactly? But wait, Jason Miller says something back to Twitter. I love this. This is like a play-by-play. Sorry, Twitter. Your attempts at censorship can undo today's legal win. Big announcement coming on our press call. Anyhow, the bottom line is this. It's news. I mean, literally, Jason Miller is saying massive news is coming. Why do you do that, Twitter? That doesn't make any sense. Look, I'm not going to even say I understand why you're censoring uh, opinion, but now you're starting to censor news? That makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, take a look at this. This is, uh, we've decided, I mean, instead of Twitter, it's got to be bitter. As in Joe Biden and the Democrats, I mean, are, are Twitter in cahoots with them? Okay, I say it, haha, sarcastic. But look, bitter. I think that should be the new Twitter handle, or it wouldn't be a Twitter handle, it would be a new app on your phone. You could get bitter. <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> aren't we all bitter hey i want that app i've had that app for about 55 years fyi uh no i haven't that's not true i'm not bitter am i anyhow that's a whole separate last sip uh but that is the situation as it relates to being censored i mean this idea of joe biden and the democrats and twitter and big tech all of them together and i'm going to say the word can i say the word cahoots look I'm not suggesting there's a, like a white bo- whiteboard, a blueprint of all of this, like, you know, Twitter and the Biden campaign and Democrats are all in a room going, hey, guys, okay, so like, here's the plan for today. I'm not saying it's that, okay, but at the same time, come on, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Silicon Valley is liberal, Twitter is liberal, Facebook, all of them, it's out of control, and that's why you get bitter. And that means when you get bitter, as in, Donald, you know, Biden and Twitter, Then what happens is conservatives get bitter because they have been, wait for it, you know it's coming. They've been censored. 